Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawarong and the Wadawarong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We would also like to pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening. Jesus. Okay, you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Hello and welcome to Chickstery, the podcast that is rewriting the history books to include the women that were written out of them. My name is Annie and sitting across from me in the virtual world is Phoebe. Yes, it is I. It, it is, is I. It mm. is I'm you mm-hmm. across the interwebs. <laughs> I know. We got there eventually. There's been a few hiccups, but we got there. We've had a few hiccups this morning. Let's, you know, we're not going to pretend we're, we are any good at this from mm. any better at this from when we first started <laughs> a year ago. I mean, and for me, three years ago. We're trying and that's all that you can ask for. Well, this is true. Last week was a fun ep. If you haven't listened, go back and have a listen. We did talk about the origins of Barbie. Mm-hmm. Babs, as you might like to call her. Babs. Mm. She she was going to be known. Um, I am going to the Barbie <laughs> premiere next week. Uh, we're having, I know that sounds really odd because <laughs> <laughs> for the rest of the world, Barbie's been out for quite some time. But I do live in a small town, a small community, and we are Look, we're a few weeks behind the rest of the world, the rest of Australia really, and it is coming to our local cinema and we have a fundraiser happening for the Castlemaine Fringe Festival, from um, which I'm a member of the committee on. So we are doing a fundraiser and it is dress up and I am going as COVID Barbie. Brilliant. I love it. What does that entail exactly? So COVID Barbie, okay, so she comes with um, cute little pink face mask. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a pink wig because do you think I could find a blonde wig in this town, <laughs> this one $2 shop horse town? Imagine the fire has it with oh, all God. of those uh, polyester wigs. I know, and, and the landfill. Mm. Oh, it hurts my yeah, heart. I know. Oh. I to take it down a notch. Anyway. Um, <laughs> moving on. Moving on. Moving on. Look, I'll, I'll use that week for the, mm. the rest of time. Don't be, you worry. It'll be coming back out again for sure. You'll be buried in that week. <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, so COVID Barbie, she comes. She also comes with a little... Uh, little rat test box, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I'm going to paint pink, obviously, because she had a pink one. Of course. Um, I'm going to strap a syringe to my arm. Now, that sounds weird, <laughs> but tape, I'm going to tape a syringe filled with some pink um, cute vaccine. Delightful. Yep. So mm. there's that. And then I'm going to have a little, oh, I'm going to wear a, a um, bathrobe, mm-hmm. pink bathrobe, pink tracksuit, Uggies, and uh, then I'm going to have a sign on my back that says, please stay 1.5 metres away. I love it. Yes. I think we should just keep that implemented, really, the distance, 1.5 metres. A hundred percent. And I was just thinking, like, 
I could probably use that sign again if I'm mm. honest. Yeah, just wave it around, hit people with it. <laughs> too close. Just, exactly. Get on the train, pop the car <gasps> in the back and just oh. remind people of our personal space. Mm. Oh, anything exciting mm. you want to report? Um, I have been doing a lot of digging into a lot of different families uh, this week and there's um, uncovered a few uh, mysteries slash Oh, okay. uncovering a few things that I don't believe the families are aware of. Oh, mm, right. yes, yes. So controversial or just... controversial, mm-hmm. um, and oh, pretty sad. But mm. I also would like to say that uh, would have been great if Facebook was around in the fifties and sixties because you know it was there very easy to change your identity. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yes. This particular individual even lied about their origins at their death. It's Um. since been uncovered that uh, they had several different identities and even at their death uh, claimed otherwise. So trying to throw people off the scent. Wow. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. And there's been a number of other families discovered in the meantime connected to this person. One of those like two family persons. Mm -hmm. Four family. Whoa. (laughs) I know. I know. Okay. You better leave it there before. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) Anyway, born and bred historical research. Come on, I'll find those family members for you. Didn't know you had. (laughs) Yes, and uncover those harrowing stories. Uh-uh. You're welcome. Okay, let's kick off with your historical fact. Each week you tell me and the listeners an interesting fact from history because you are the real historian and I am not. <laughs> okay. Um, so talking about some of the research I have done recently, there have been a number of families where I've discovered that a gentleman has married two sisters, not at the same time, one after the other. Uh, In two particular cases, the couple had had several children together when the mother had died in childbirth or soon after, and shortly after her death, the bereaved widower then went on to marry the dead wife's younger sister. So this is quite common. Uh, And in both of these instances, this happened in the mid to late 1800s and it wasn't uncommon for an aunt in particular to take over the care of her nieces and nephews or nibblings as the collective noun is known. So it's not uncommon for a widower to marry again so soon after the death of his wife that needed someone to care for the home, for the children, for him, you know. Fair enough. Exactly. Men yeah. can't do it all on their own. No, okay. they they have their arms, their legs painted on. So marriage to a sister-in-law after their wife's death was quite common practice in 19th century Australia and England. However, in the mid-1830s, the English Parliament, which was reflected in colonial Australian laws, passed a statute to make it illegal for a widowed man to marry his sister-in-law. Mm. Although the debate in England lasted for seven decades, it was not until the 1870s that it was examined in Australia where it was decided that the marriage between a widowed man and his sister-in-law would be legal. 
and it would not be until the turn of the century where it was legalised in England after decades of debate that essentially centred around that age-old argument of church versus state. Mm. That old chestnut. That old chestnut. Uh, It is thought that one of the reasons why the Australian colonies at different times legalised these unions was because there was a lack of an established Church of England and a greater diversity of religious denominations, which led to a more tolerant and liberal approach to the marriage question. Mm -hmm. This did not mean that there was a lack of religion in Australia at the time. However, some have argued that it was because there was a necessity for a collective approach to maintaining Christianity in whatever form that held. So it's your turn this week and you have a chick story for me. I do indeed. Let me ask you. Okay. Do you like wine? Does a bear shit in the woods? Mm. Is the Pope Catholic? (laughs) Well, you will enjoy this story. This okay. is for you. This yeah. is for all the winos out there, all the non-winos, all whatever. The winos. Mm. I love it. Yes. Mm. Okay. Oh. Born in London in sometime between 1816 and 1820, Mary Holt was the only child of Dr. Thomas Glover Holt and Elizabeth Acton, who was known to be a well-educated woman. Because of her good standing in society, Mary received a good education and was well-versed on money matters due to her parents being transparent and open about their own financial affairs. Mm -hmm. In 1835, Mary married Christopher Rawson Penfold. Stop it. Mm, Keep that name in mind. Oh, I I am. I do. Often. (laughs) Often. Christopher was one of 13 children to the local vicar in Sussex. When the pair married, Christopher was in his final years of studying medicine. Three years later, the couple moved to the British coastal town of Brighton where Christopher established his medical practice. After two years in Brighton and five as a married couple, the Penfolds welcomed their daughter and only child, Georgina, into the world. In 1844, when Georgina was only four years old and the three Penfolds and their maid Ellen Timbrell embarked on a journey to the colonies and a new life. There is speculation that Christopher was running away from some financial problems and bad debts. Mm-hmm. And where better than to run than the other side of the world where those debts would have trouble following him? The four boarded the Taglioni in London and began their 127-day voyage to the colony of South Australia. Oh, my God, that would not be fun. No. I mean, we talk about long voyages on boats in this podcast and, oh, I mean, we have, I mean, can you imagine? And that was about the average, you know, voyage from England to uh, Australia and it's just that. Be horrid conditions. Oh God, it's not off the, the boat and in the boat. No, the P and O or the no. fed are the fun ship. No, the Queen Mary or whatever her name is. God no, oh, no, not the love boat. The love, <laughs> or it might be. <laughs> well, it could have been. Well, <laughs> one days. Upon their arrival to Adelaide, there would be no trouble finding work for Christopher. In fact, Adelaide had scope for a doctor and with Christopher's extensive experience working at St Bartholomew's Hospital as well as his private practice, he practically walked into employment. With work sorted, the family had also been granted a purchase of land on the outskirts of Adelaide. MacGill Estate, which would later be known as McGill, M-A-G-I-L-L, for all of those listening at home, (laughs) was in the Mount Lofty Ranges and was purchased for 
£1,200 by the Penfolds before they had even set foot on the land. Wow. The property was about 500 acres, 200 acres of which was under crop and had good fertile soil. There had been a stone cottage erected on the property by the previous owners who had had to forfeit the property when they became a little strapped for cash. Soon after they arrived, Mary named their new home Grange Cottage after the family home she had left in England. When they moved to their new home, they brought with them some of their most valued possessions and enough to set up a new home and life in what would have been a largely unknown circumstance. Oh, wow. Aside from furnishings, including a piano, I mean, imagine bringing that with you on the ship. A piano? Mm. We have trouble moving pianos in this day and age. Oh, I know. Holy dooly. God, at least there would have been some sing-songs. Well, that's true. So they had the piano. The luggage also included a small collection of grapevine cuttings of the French variety Grenache, which were wrapped in canvas. Wow. Mm. Cuttings yeah, such as these. See where you're going with this. Yeah, yeah. She's clued on, guys. <laughs> yeah. She knows what's happening. Mm. Cuttings such as these, which will replicate the parent vine, are the, the traditional means of establishing a vineyard. The initial expectation for the use of the cutting was that after planting it, it would help to produce wine for medicinal purposes. So it was believed that wine was a useful treatment of anemia and Mary's original plan had been to make a wine tonic for Christopher's patients who visited his clinic with their ailments and medical emergencies. Wow, I, I'm at the same same belief. Same, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so some of this growing belief in the restorative nature of wine came about as the British naval surgeons had long prescribed wine for a range of ailments including scurvy on those long sea voyages mm. however by the 1860s their tune had changed when the british establishment were raising concerns about excessive alcohol consumption in the empire countries they believed that if the working classes were able to drink alcohol then it should be wine free of spirits which were used to preserve it for shipping the wine that was drunk in england had arrived by ship and was often fortified to last the long journey the British government believed that this was the problem. However, Australian colony colonies drinkers could obtain pure wine without the additives such as brandy and therefore it was better for the consumer. Can you imagine like your red wine being spiked with brandy or whiskey yeah. or something, yeah. you know, like the full, oh, my goodness, that mm. would be rocket fuel. Ooh, delicious. <laughs> So not only was Christopher's medical practice thriving at this time, he was also the medical professional responsible for attending to inquests and conducting post-mortems in Adelaide and, and the surrounds, as well as the authority on certifying the mental condition of any person suspected of lunacy. He was also prominent in local government and a member of the vestry of the St George's Church in Adelaide. Meanwhile, Mary was keeping house, her husband's books, managing his medical practice, as well as overseeing the total enterprise that was McGill Estate with her maid and longtime friend Ellen by her side. By the 1850s, less than a decade after they had arrived in South Australia, Mary was well into her work making wine, which had all sprung from that initial cutting she had brought with her on her trip from England. Wow. I had no idea that that, okay, I'm loving mm. this. Mm. There were few experienced winemakers in the colony at the time and so much of it was trial and error for the woman who had neither been trained in winemaking nor viticulture or had been surrounded by it in her earlier years like some immigrants from Europe may have been. So, And also in France. completely different climate, getting to know, you know, the 
soils and like you know all of that stuff you know absolutely i dabble in some gardening and it's tricky like yeah. it really takes you a really good long time to understand mm. how to do things well you know you don't just plant it and it grows i've learned <laughs> well that's the approach i have and mm. it doesn't work i can i can tell you right now my veggie patch is looking very dire so that's just incredible good on i know it. So British immigrant wine growers of the time would often be required to consult published works by their colonial peers, again, who didn't have so much of a clue. The success of local growers such as Mary Penfold meant that South Australia emerged as Australia's largest wine-producing colony by the late 1860s. Initially, the vineyard produced fortified wine and sherry, but soon found that clarets and Rieslings were also easy to produce and sold well. Mary helped to cultivate the vines as well as help with the blending of grapes to create the wine. Everything Mary knew about wine in the vineyard, she taught herself and insisted on having the grapes blended to her own taste. So there was no rhyme or reason. It was just this is, I like the taste of this. Yeah. Mm. Mary and her young daughter Georgina made several trips to Melbourne during the late 1850s and early 1860s. On one such occasion, Georgina met a Victorian civil servant named Thomas Highland. In 1862, the couple married and soon after Thomas became the Melbourne agent for Grange Estate Wines. Meanwhile, Mary had returned to her post at the vineyard in Adelaide and continued her work amongst the vines. In 1870, at only 59 years old, Dr Christopher Penfold died after a long battle with ill health. By the time of Christopher's death and due to Mary's hard work, the Grange Vineyard had grown to over 60 acres with several different grape varieties including Grenache, Vidello and Mataro. The estate was now producing both sweet and dry red and white wine varietals. And over the decade following her husband's death, Mary advertised and promoted her products in Adelaide through newspaper advertisements which read things like good harvest wines at the Grange McGill and the property soon after earned the name of Mrs Penfolds. Oh, wow. However, oh, when Christopher died... Thomas, Mary's son-in-law, was under the assumption that Mary would not be able to manage the vineyards without her husband and seemed to be unaware that it was Mary who was indeed the force behind the winery. Thomas suggested that he broker a deal for poor old Mary for the sale of the Grange so she could draw a pension from the income of the sale. No, don't Mm. do it, Mary. Mary responded to this offer from her son-in-law by sending Thomas the detailed financial ledgers and business forecasts she had created, which was all in her own hand. Thomas's offer was swiftly rejected. Yes. However, Mary did offer him a partnership for which he accepted. Joseph Gillard, a South Australian wine entrepreneur, also joined the business as the cellar manager. Mary continued to operate and oversee the vineyard as she'd always done and it was said that she would command from her white horse and would watch over the vineyard with her treasured spyglass. Oh, I just picture that. That's incredible. Mm. She would have been riding side saddle oh, on a horse too, I'd imagine. Mm. She was known to have a modern and ordered operation and was an early adopter of steam power crushing and built up-to-date concrete vats for fermenting grape juice. Mary was also interested in new production methods and was keen to avoid fatal diseases like phylloxera, mm. which is one of the most feared pests in viticulture. Phylloxera had led to almost total crop losses in the Geelong wine industry in the 1870s. By the late 1880s, keeping it out of South Australia became a high priority so as not to hamper the important economy in the colony. Mm. 
1889, the South Australian government passed the Phylloxera Act to provide powers to establish a board to collect funds for preparedness and compensation in the event of an incursion and to regulate the entire of planting material in the estate. Why important, people? Yes, and it was one of their biggest um, trades. Industries, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Even through all of Mary's work in the wine industry in South Australia, she was not eligible to join the South Australian Vignerons Association because she was a woman and women were excluded from such agricultural associations. Oh, my gosh. However, she did correspond with them on matters of importance to her own business. She also began exporting red and white wines, including Madeira, Tokay, Mataro and Musket to other Australian colonies as well as British India. Mm. Interestingly, her wines were not that well known within South Australia. However, they did win a number of international prizes. Well, that's a tale as old as time. Mm. That's the Kylie Minogue bloody theory. Can't exactly. make it in your own country, but off off your pop to overseas yeah. and, and they bloody love you. Mm. You just don't know what's right under your nose. Well, this is true. Mm. In 1880, Mary, Thomas Highland and Joseph Gillard negotiated a new business contract for Mary whereby she would remain a winemaker and seller for a further seven years and would receive 10% of the company's profits. Four years, yeah, which I think is I think is pretty good. That it's, okay. To me it sort of gave a bit of the impression that they were keeping her in the business. Right. Yeah, not, okay. not trying to cut her out. And by this time she was in her 60s. Fair enough. Yeah, Fair and enough. But, for yeah for the nineteenth century, that's old age. Yeah, that's old age. Yeah, and I guess that's mm. probably still a lot of money for those days. Yeah, well. So four years after this contract, at the age of sixty-eight, Mary handed her business management to Joseph Gillard, the seller manager she had employed. But she did remain in her home on the property, where I believe she likely continued to oversee the workings of the winery on her white mare with her spyglass. By the time of her retirement, the Penfold Company was producing one-third of the wine in South Australia and had exhibited at the Colonial Exhibition in London, as well as exhibiting in at least six international wine shows, including the second ever show held in Paris. Sadly, in 1896, Mary Penfold died. The Adelaide Register newspaper had reported on her death and they noted her 48 years living at the Grange Vineyard but failed to mention her pioneering contribution to the Penfolds business. I know, the success of the wines it produced and her contribution to the wine industry at all. So they just thought she was just, you know, being a lovely little housewife living Mm. in her little cottage, just maybe knitting or crocheting or doing some needlepoint. That's right, twiddling her thumbs. Twiddling her thumbs, but Mm. no, she was sitting up and running one of, bloody South Australia's biggest wineries. Oh, exactly. goodness, people. Mm. So not surprisingly, uh, Penfold's success was attributed to Mary's husband, Dr Christopher Penfold. Whilst he may have had a hand, of some, a hand in some of its production, it's clear that he did not deal with the day-to-day dealings of the winery, production or even the accounts as ledgers and books have been found that, that are in Mary's hand. Christopher Penfold would have had his hands and days filled with his medical practice and little to do with the development of the actual winery. Mm. 
Yeah, because he was a bloody doctor. So how yeah. can he have done both? But still he gets credited for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, God. I know. The Australian Dictionary of Biography only has a bio on Christopher Penfold and sings his praises. No. <laughs> it states that through the careful husbandry of Mary and a domestic servant, Ellen Timbrell, the output gradually increased. But at first Penfold, referring to Christopher, restricted his output to wines, which would indicate that he was responsible for the success of the vineyard. Oh. The last line of the entry to Christopher Penfold's bio reads, he has been called the first scientific vigneron of Australia, but much of his success was actually the result of the patience and understanding of wine production which Mary had developed whilst her husband was busy in his own profession. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. I know. Fleur Lancashire, a wine historian. Yes, it's a real thing. I'm totally thinking about changing my avenue. Uh, Fleur did her PhD on the historical, social and cultural impact of British women on the port wine industry in Portugal during the 18th and 19th centuries and she is fighting to have Mary and other women winemakers included in the Australian Dictionary of Biography. Before her PhD, Fleur questioned why women were little spoken about in the industry of winemaking, especially because winemaking continued through many wars. And who would have been making the wine if the men were on the war front? So Fleur discovered that many of the world's first winemakers were indeed women. Of course. Which makes a lot of sense. Mm. I know, of course. I mean, you know, and that's, yeah, we talk about that a lot, how, yeah, when the men go off to war, Mm. women have had to do the things. Exactly. Including making wine. Exactly. By 1907, Penfolds was the largest winery in South Australia and were producing about 450,000 litres of wine. Today, Australia's primary grapes are Shiraz, Chardonnay and Cabernet Sauvignon and there are more than 2,000 wineries in Australia. And I have been in touch with my sister and her partner who own a wine store and currently in 2023, a mid-range bottle of Penfolds Grange retails at about $500 per (gasps) bottle. Wow. I know. So that's all down to Mary, Mary, quite... Loves a tipple. <laughs> <laughs> the story of Mary Penfold. That's incredible. Mm. And I can't believe that, you know, still fighting to have her included. Yep. Her biography included. But the husband's there, of course. Mm-hmm. And how how could he have managed a, a medical practice? He was going out and doing bloody autopsies and mm. all of that sort of stuff. But, of course, he also could run the entire vineyard that's that's right and I would just like to point out uh it is unclear whether Dr Penfold did prescribe wine tonics for his anemic patients wasn't able to confirm that I'd imagine he probably did though probably I Mm. mean we love to we love to prescribe prescribe liquor back in the Mm. day yes health ailments Mm -hmm. and I like to do the same today (laughs) in 2023 (laughs) probably not with a bottle of Grange no got Mm. a headache have some wine. <laughs> Got some women's troubles? Have some wine. <laughs> it's a, it's a Wednesday. Wine. Have some wine. It's mm. a Wednesday. <laughs> Trouble at work? Have some wine. But drink responsibly. But please drink responsibly. Well, that was great. Thank you. 
Good work. And we'll be back next week with another story about a woman from history who doesn't get the recognition she deserves. But that's our job to tell you, lovely people. It is. Now, like, subscribe, share us with your friends, tell everyone you know. Even just tell one person that you know. Until next week, stay sober. <laughs>